Would you now turn with me in your Bibles to the second letter of Paul to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We'll be reading from verses 13 through 18. 2 Corinthians 4, 13 through 18. Hear now the word of God. But having the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believed, therefore I spoke. We also believe, therefore we also speak. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. For all things are for your sakes, so that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. Therefore we do not lose heart, but, through our, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. This is the word of the Lord. Even though our pastor is on vacation today, uh, I say vacation, they're making a quick trip over to see the family. Uh, So that is a long drive, and I encourage you to keep them in your prayers. But um, we are going to continue on studying in 2 Corinthians, and so let's look to the Lord again in prayer. Father, we do thank you so much for your kindness and mercy to us. Lord, you are a gracious God, a God who speaks to us at the point of our need, and we pray that today our hearts and minds would be open to you. Father, we pray that in everything we might uh, do that which is pleasing and honoring to Christ as we live. And we know, Father, that that is not of us, but that is of your grace and the power of your Spirit. And may he come and teach us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, my career as a mountaineer was all of about two weeks long. Uh, I was a summer camp counselor between my freshman and sophomore years at Camp Westminster in Atlanta. It's an old, uh, uh, great camp from that's uh, sponsored by one of our churches in the Atlanta area, and it has a co-ed camp, and it has sessions for senior high and junior high and elementary, and they would always do the senior high camp first. It's sort of like jerking the Band-Aid off really fast so the rest of it doesn't feel so bad. And so that was, uh, so that was the way they, they did things. And uh, so it was right out of the blocks there, a senior high camp. And uh, they decided, the camp directors did, before we all got there, that they would do something different this year for the senior high. So they made the decision to turn senior high session into a wilderness camp that year. The problem was is that none of us counselors who worked there were actually wilderness types. So without, uh, unbeknownst to us, they planned for counselor training that year to be turned into a Christian version of survivor boot camp. Now, the first morning there, we were all jerked out of bed at 6 a.m. by the head counselors, and we were taken on a run around the camp. I mean, I, you know, they didn't, that wasn't summer camp that I remember, but that was the way we were doing it. So we were out there running around. Every now and then, we would have to stop in the early morning light and do a team-building exercise as a group. Um, that's a whole other story in itself. But after a couple of days like that at camp, we all then piled into a bus and headed off to North Carolina for our training in the wild. Now, to be honest with you, it was a fun and stretching few days out there in the woods. We, we hiked. We learned how to use a compass and a map. We learned how to live out of a backpack. We learned that hot Hawaiian punch made with boiling stream water is pretty good when you're wet and cold and hungry. I've not tried it when I've been neither wet nor cold nor hungry, but it was pretty good out there. 
But then we came to the grand finale of our boot camp, the grand finale of our training. And uh, we discovered it on the last day out there in the woods. We got up, fixed our breakfast, we were loading up, and then a couple of strangers walked up into the camp. Well, how nice is that? That happens in the woods. But they were talking very familiarly with our leaders. And that started to make me nervous because these folks had ropes hanging all over them. And I thought, this does not look good. But ah, yes, the grand finale of our camp was to train in repelling. And this is the ultimate trust-building exercise. One repels and the other belays and works the rope to lock you down in case you fall. But the girl that was belaying me was so terrified that, that I thought she'll only wake up from her trance when she feels the bump of my body hitting the earth 80 feet below. So that was how we did that. Now, you have to understand something. I have to, at this point, you might be thinking I'm frightened of heights. I'm not frightened of heights. It's edges that bother me. So the idea of scrambling up the backside of an 80-foot cliff in order to voluntarily step off the edge of that cliff out into nothingness just wasn't very appealing. It just didn't seem like the smart thing to do with a perfectly good rock. But that's what we did that day, and that's the last time I've done it as well. But I've done it. It's on my resume. Check. Okay. Well, I tell you all that to tell you this. The only injury that we suffered that day actually happened to the most experienced person in our group. You know, sometime around mid-morning while I was waiting with some of the other counselor trainees down at the bottom of the cliff for my turn on the rocks, I heard a shout and some noise behind me. And I turned around, and I still remember turning around just in time to see our female instructor land at the bottom of the rocks after a 20-foot fall. That was pretty disturbing, to say the least, especially since I hadn't had my turn up there yet. But that was scary. What happened? Well, it turned out that she was trying to climb down the route that we novices were using to scramble up to our rappelling perch when she lost her balance and she fell the last third of the way, bouncing off all the rocks all the way down. Now, it sounds terrible, but she was wearing a helmet and she wasn't badly hurt, just some bumps and some bruises and the uncontrollable urge to answer a ringing telephone that she heard all the rest of that day, I think. But one thing about that stuck with me, and that was a lesson that we all learned from that sobering experience, and the lesson is this. Even experienced climbers sometimes lose their balance. Even experienced climbers sometimes lose their balance. And that's as true in life as it was on the cliff that day. After all, as anyone who has lived a while can tell you, life isn't always an easy climb. I mean, there are some stretches where the path is smooth, the grade is level, but most of the time we find ourselves scrambling over rough terrain of one sort or another. For all of us in this fallen world, there is grief and there is loss of various kinds and to various degrees. There is sickness and ultimately there is death. And not to mention that in the middle of all that is the inevitable challenge that comes to us when one sinful person, meaning me, has to deal with another sinful person, meaning you, in a relationship. That can be rough at times. And if that weren't enough, for the Christian, life can be doubly tough. Because we experience all those same things that everybody else goes through, simply living here as we do in a fallen world. But we also experience the misunderstanding and the opposition and the sheer challenge at times of following Jesus in an unbelieving world that stands against us and stands against our gospel that we, that we love and proclaim. They just don't understand it. Now, when we look back to verse 8 of this chapter, we can get a feel for just how rough the terrain can be for a believer. Remember Joseph preached from this last week. Verse 8, Paul says, We are hard-pressed on every side, 
perplexed, persecuted, struck down. I left out the knots in there for a reason, because I wanted you to see the picture. This was a tough experience, this life that Paul was leading. And even the most experienced climbers can lose their balance in spots like that. I know Paul said he was hard-pressed but not crushed, perplexed but not in despair, persecuted but not abandoned, struck down but not destroyed. But to be honest with you, sometimes we do feel crushed. Sometimes we do feel despairing. Sometimes we do feel abandoned and even destroyed. So how is it that Paul can say he's not any of those things, especially in light of all that he's experiencing there? How can he keep his balance and even feel joy in the face of the things that tend to leave us free-falling when they come into our lives? Well, in the passage we're going to look at today, he tells us. And the good news is this. The way Paul keeps his balance on the climb is as much there and available to us in our climb as it was for him and his. So as we look at this passage together for the next few minutes, I want you to see that it's possible to keep our balance and even live with confidence and joy in life in spite of trial and in spite of hardship if we can learn to live here in time as people who will live for eternity. We can keep our balance if we learn to live here in time as people who will live for eternity. And one thing that is true for every one of us here this morning is that we are residents of time. And that single fact influences every choice that we make in life. It cannot help but do that. And that's especially true when it comes to the experience of pain like the Apostle Paul describes here in this chapter. As we've said, real life will eventually bring us pain, bring us suffering of some sort. It just will. And if you're honest, I have to be honest, my instinctive response to pain as a human being isn't usually Job's response of the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh, blessed be the name of the Lord. But my instinctive response, and I think so many people's instinctive response, is usually how can I make the pain go away? How can I make sure it never comes back again? That's our response. And you see, it's at that very point where people start making choices, and not all of those choices are good ones. After all, it's here that so many people grow fearful and discontented with their lives and even with God himself. And so they determine then and there to find a path that makes the pain quit hurting so much. But let me tell you, from that point on, it is not much of a step to the next plateau down and then the next and then the one after that until some truly disastrous and unthinkable choices in life become thinkable to us and eventually become the only thing that we can imagine even doing. Well, if those are the dangers that we face as we scramble up the rocks in this world, you can see why we so desperately need to keep something solid to hang on to close at hand, something that we can grab hold of to keep our balance. Paul in this passage shows us two great assurances here that we can grab hold of as we climb through life as God's people in this world. Hand, uh, assurances that can give us the handholds that we need to keep our balance. So first of all, I want you to see that according to Paul here, we first must keep a firm grip on the assurance of God's hidden work in our lives. We have to keep a firm grip on the assurance of God's hidden work in our lives. Look at verse 16. Paul says, Therefore we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. 
You know, it's interesting to me that as Paul looks at his life, a life that was just like yours and mine, the thing that comforts him here is the knowledge that there is more going on than meets the eye. Do you notice there Paul says that the outward man is wasting away? What's he talking about? Well, what Paul's talking about here is the process of physical deterioration that's part of daily life in a world that's fallen into sin and misery and death, as our catechism says. And for Paul, this, this deterioration has two dimensions. First of all, this would have to include all the ordinary wear and tear on the body that comes with living. Had an elder's wife, very wise lady one time. She said, Robert, after a certain age, it's just patch, patch, patch. And she's exactly right. There is a natural decay of strength and health and vitality that comes simply with the aging process. And the longer we go, the more familiar with that process we become. Now, in Paul's case, as well as that of many, many other believers throughout the centuries and even now, this wasting away also includes the extraordinary wear and tear that comes from the pressure and stress of persecution and hardships suffered for Jesus' sake in this world. And according to Paul here, this outward decay is a process that can be easily seen by the naked eye. All we have to do is look in the mirror and after that pop open the medicine cabinet if we need any extra point of reference on that. And so because that's the truth, this Outward wasting away becomes a powerful reference for us as we assess where we are at any point in life. We look there and we start to hear the clock ticking. Now, I know we all tend to laugh at the classic images of the midlife crisis. Open shirts, gold chains, fast cars, new boats, new blondes, all that sort of thing have become cliché to us. And the reason they become cliché is because they are tragically common. But, of course, as anyone who's seen that play out up close it's very easy to see that those sorts of things are simply pathetic attempts to turn the clock back to a time when the outward man hadn't wasted away so much, back when life looked promising and new, not old and tired and quickly slipping away. But according to the Apostle Paul here, what we see in the mirror when we look at the outward man isn't the only reality that exists for the Christian. In fact, according to Paul here, at the very time this outer man is wasting away, he's simultaneously being renewed in the inner man, he says, in Christ. Notice, just as day by day we weather the storms of life, whether ordinary or extraordinary, we, so also day by day God is doing something inside us too, even as all that's going on on the outside. And what he is doing is working within us by his Spirit in such a way that we who know Jesus will be conformed more and more into his likeness the longer we go and walk with him. But what does that mean? What does that look like? Well, it means coming to love what Jesus loves more and more and coming to love self and the things of this life less and less. It means coming to think more as Jesus thinks and to be less and less conformed to the thinking of the world around us. It means coming to do as Jesus does as we live more and more in obedience to the Father in the power that the Spirit supplies, just like Jesus did in His perfect life and sacrificial death for us on the cross. And you see, while the fruit of that process will ultimately show itself over time in practical ways, the daily operation of that renewal takes place where no eye can see, even and sometimes especially our own. It's like trying to watch your kids grow. You can't see it happening, but one of these days, one day you look around and they've grown. And how did it happen? We don't know, but we know that it's going on. Paul says that's how spiritual growth looks like as well. 
You see, for Paul here, the first thing that keeps him encouraged and refusing to lose heart, which is often, you see, the first step toward falling on the climb, what keeps him encouraged and refusing to lose heart is the knowledge that by the Spirit, God is doing something of eternal significance in him that may not, he, he may not always be able to see. And the fact of the matter is, is that one of God's primary tools for doing that is the very hardship that's causing the outward man to waste away. That same hardship, friends, that we'd like to avoid if we could. Turn with me over to Hebrews chapter 12 for a minute. Hebrews chapter 12. You read beginning at verse 7. The writer of Hebrews says this. He says, Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of our spirits and live? Our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Now, to be honest with you, that passage right there is a precious one, but it is easier to agree with in my head than it is in my heart, and I suspect I'm not alone here as I read through that. And yet, according to the writer of Hebrews here, this is a word of encouragement to us. What can be encouraging about discipline and pain and hardship and suffering? How in the world can this be? Well, in the first place here, this is a word of encouragement to us because it tells us something encouraging about us. This word of discipline tells us something about us. It tells us that the hardship that we're experiencing is nothing less than the discipline of God in our lives. You see, in the ancient world, many a wealthy Roman man would have both legitimate sons and illegitimate sons because their sexual morality was as bad or worse than our own. And the illegitimate sons were usually left to just fend for themselves in this world, but the legitimate son was given all of the privileges of the household, all of the training, all of the instruction, all of the opportunities to learn and grow and take his place at his father's side and then his father's place down the road one day. That's how it was done. And Paul and the writer of Hebrews rather here tells us that the hardship we're experiencing is nothing less than the discipline of God in our lives that tells us that we are true sons, that we are adopted sons of God in Christ. And as such, we are the objects of his fatherly love and care even when to the touch it doesn't feel like it. And not only is this an encouraging word about us, but this passage also speaks, he says, an encouraging message to us as well. And what it's saying is this, that none of our trials, none of our hardships are wasted. In other words, far from being meaningless, our suffering is actually full of God's great purpose for our lives as his children. And that purpose, as verse 10 tells us here, is that we may share in his holiness. And that's important, of course. Because without holiness, we will never see the Lord, nor will we enjoy the peaceful fruit of righteousness that grows from a life that is well-lived in obedience to God. 
One of my favorite plays is a, is a play about C.S. Lewis. It's called Shadowlands. It's also been done as a movie. You may have seen that or the, the, TV, uh, the TV special that was done back in the 80s on PBS. A beautiful story about C.S. Lewis and his late-in-life love story with, uh, uh, about his marriage with Joy Davidman. Now, C.S. Lewis was an old, contented bachelor when he met a bright American divorcee with two young sons, and, and ultimately they married, and then within just a few years, Joy grew sick and died of cancer. Now, my favorite moment in the play happens in the last act, actually, when, when Jack, which is what C.S. Lewis's friends called him, when Jack is back at his pub with his circle of friends, and they all are trying to, none of them know what to say, none knows how to bring it up, Finally, his friend Christopher speaks to him, and, and his Christopher is the, is the college chaplain, and he tries to encourage him with talk of God's greater purpose in Joy's death and, and in Jack's grief. But Jack's not ready to hear all that yet. And that's when he delivers my favorite line in the play. That's when he simply says, This is just a mess. This is just a mess. Now, I looked at the quotes from the play online. You know, nobody ever quotes that line, but I love that line because it's so true. I don't know how many times I have spoken with folks who are struggling with something in their lives and heard a version of that conversation. Something's come along that has knocked us hard from one side or the other, and we find ourselves teetering and our balance is about to go, and we're on the brink of despair and discouragement because we think God has abandoned us and we are about to fall. And in our minds at that point, the pain we're experiencing is proof positive. It is is, uh, evidence number one to us of the accuracy of our feelings. And in our hearts we go, this is just a mess. And if I don't clean it up, nobody will. Well, friends, according to the writer of Hebrews here, the truth of the matter is this. God has ordained that the discipline that hardship brings to the believer in life is to be one of the primary instruments used in this laboratory of sanctification called life. And so because of that, hardship has to be not only endured, but even to, in a degree, embraced by the Christian. Not that we love the pain, but we do embrace the purpose and the process. And we do that because we know that God is using that to renew the inner man day after day. And as we begin to see the fruit of that renewal grow in us, and it will grow in us, we might just find the joy and the happiness that are eluding us in our pain and that we often eludes us, usually does elude us when we go looking for it directly. So that's the first assurance we need when the climb gets tough and we start to lose our balance, that we need to grab hold of when we start to fall. But secondly, according to Paul here, we also need to keep a firm grip on the assurance of our heavenly reward as well. We have to keep a firm grip not only on this hidden reality of God's work in our lives, but also our heavenly reward. Listen to verses 17 and 18. Let's go back to 2 Corinthians now. 17 and 18 says, For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Now, that's the secret there. There is a focus there uh, that Paul has that is so very different from us. You know, one of the knocks that Christians have inevitably received over the years is that they are so otherworldly in their outlook that they are no 
earthly good. So they're no good for life in this world. Now, I will admit that somewhere on this planet, that statement might just be true. But from what I see in myself and in the people I've worked with over the years, the real problem is we think far too little of the future, far too much of the present than the other way around. And that's precisely why so many Christians struggle with the daily challenges of living for Jesus in a fallen world. And that's why Paul's point of view here is so important for us to understand and then ultimately utilize in our lives here as believers this morning. Now notice, according to Paul here, the sufferings and the hardships we endure in this life have an impact far beyond this life. As Paul said just a moment ago, one dimension of the unseen that Paul talks about here that he looks at and he focuses on in verse 18, one dimension that revolves around what God is doing within us here and now, and that is a comfort to us. But according to Paul here, there is another unseen dimension involved as well, and that's the unseen realm of eternity. Now, it's not unseen in the sense of being unreal somehow. Eternity is obviously that which is most real of any reality that is in existence. But even so, eternity is still unseen because it is beyond us, both in time and in space. For us, it is still the world to come. And the best we can do in this world is get a taste of it now and then, here a little and there a little, in our experience of the life of the age to come into which we've entered when we come to know Jesus Christ. When it says you have eternal life in Christ, it means that you have entered into the life of the age to come. But we are only on the steps in front of the front porch, my friends. We have only begun to see and taste those things. And according to Paul here, our present sufferings in time are achieving for us an immeasurable weight of glory in eternity. And that's what matters most to him and needs to matter most to us as well. Now, don't get me wrong. Paul is not saying here that somehow we merit glory in eternity by the hardship and the pain we endure for God in this world. When we hear the word achieve, we usually think of something we've worked for, something we have earned, and we expect someone to pay us for that achievement. But that's not how the God of grace deals with us when it comes to this process of our pain. Now, what Paul is saying is that God chooses to use the hardship that we endure for Christ's sake in this life as His ordained channel by which He will bless us with heavenly reward in the age to come. He simply chooses to do this. Now, if we were to endure hardship as discipline, we, and we were to do it perfectly, the best we could say to God would be, we are your unworthy servants, we have simply done our duty. But God goes one up beyond that and says that He determines to give reward, to give glory. Whatever that may mean, in all its magnificence, we don't have the bandwidth in our own heads in this world to even take that in. But that glory is ours because of the grace of God, which He chooses then to bestow on us for faithfully enduring in hardship. And let me tell you, if we can really get a solid grip on that truth, it will change everything about the way that we see pain as we go through it here and now. That's what happened to Paul. Notice Paul says, he calls his troubles here light and momentary. But let me tell you, friends, from our vantage point, they would be neither. If you look over in chapter 11, verses 23 to 29, you get just a quick rundown of these light and momentary afflictions that Paul's talking about here. 
He says, are they servants of Christ? I am out of my mind to talk like this. Sorry, we just dropped into the middle of this discussion. But here he goes. He says, I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false brothers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have gone without food. I have been cold and naked. And besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak that I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin that I do not inwardly burn? I read that and I go, Paul, I give up. You win. There is no list I can lay over against that list that will get any worse than that. So Paul is not a guy who is unacquainted with suffering and with difficulty and with hardship of the ordinary and the extraordinary kind. He gets it. And yet... Paul is neither a masochist or a fool. He is, in fact, a man who hurt every bit as much as we do. And yet he says he wasn't crushed by the pain that he experienced. And the reason he wasn't crushed was because he looked at his suffering now in light of what was to come. And then he made his assessment accordingly. After all, if this life is all there is, then things suffered here and now would have to seem enormous and unending to us. But given that real life, as we are destined to experience it, only begins when this one ends, and that the life that begins when this one ends will never end, given all of that, then anything suffered now will easily shrink by comparison into something manageable and endurable if we truly see things as they really are. And according to Paul here in verses 13 to 15, the reason this isn't simply wishful thinking is because... Our view of life and death and eternity, this view that gives us perspective, can be seen that way because Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Look back at 4.13 and following. He says, It is written, I believe, therefore I have spoken. With that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you in his presence. All this is for your benefit, so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. You see, up until this point, you might say, well, that's just an interesting Christian belief. You folks have this interesting view of the afterlife. So many do, and that's your interesting one. And whatever happens in eternity, nobody really knows. But we say, yes, we do know. That's why Paul says, I believe, therefore I speak. You can't shut me up, he says, because eternity entered into time in the person of Jesus Christ, and in when death was destroyed in this time, in this reality, it gave us proof positive that that which is to come is as real as anything that we can imagine ever in this life. It is solid and sure. It's as solid and sure as the rock that was rolled away on the day that Jesus walked out of the tomb in Joseph's garden on that first Easter Sunday. And let me tell you, friends, when we start to see that, we will have perspective. 
We went on a house hunting trip to Colorado in 1999 when we moved there back in the last century. Sounds so long ago now. But we, uh, we flew into Denver. That's often where you can get the cheaper air flights and all that. And I will never forget one of the bonuses of that trip was a view of the Denver skyline such as I have never seen before. It was really quite something. Now, we lived out there for a few years, and we'd go up to the city like you always do. And so we spent some time in lower downtown, or Lodo as they call it out there. And, and that's the area of the city, the central business district and the entertainment district, and it's near the ballparks and all that sort of thing. And it's the kind of thing you would imagine in a world-class city. There are tall skyscrapers down there, big corporate headquarters, tall apartment buildings. And so when you walk down the 16th Street Mall there and you look up, it just sort of dwarfs you and it towers over you. And that's the normal way of it. But when you fly into the airport, which was put halfway out to Kansas so they can build 100, air, 100 runways if they want to out there and never, never disturb anything but jackrabbits and prairie dogs, they... Uh, they laid it all out there so far out from town that you can really see the city as you make your way around the Loop 225 to go south. And it was the most fascinating thing. Big, world-class city, Denver, beautiful place. But when you see it silhouetted against the Rampart Range and the Rocky Mountain National Park off in the distance, and you see those massive mountains behind it, it looks like you could reach over and take all of Denver and hold it in your hands like this and just shake it like a snow globe. It's that small, it's that stunning when you suddenly see it against the, the massive Rocky Mountains behind it. You realize in that moment that perspective is everything in life. Things that seem so big seem small when the perspective shifts to a wider view, doesn't it? Well, friends, that's what Paul is saying here as he gives us an eternal perspective on the pain and suffering we endure in this life. And yet that's one of the first things that we lose when we encounter hardship and trial along the way, isn't it? That is the first thing to go. The pain we feel suddenly seems to tower over us like downtown skyscrapers that just exploded out of the earth right at our feet. And in the immediacy of that pain, we simply cannot see, and sometimes we choose not to, step back and see the mountains of the glory that is yet to come to those who patiently endure and obey in the midst of their suffering. And so our moment just becomes lived there in the shadows when God intends for us to see the grand perspective, the grand view. Friends, if we were to believe what God has said about our suffering and really take it to heart, then James's counsel to count it all joy when we encounter trials of various kinds wouldn't sound so impossible to us. But more often than not, and more often than you'd imagine, people who claim to know Christ consciously choose in times of our pain not to accept that these things could be true. They don't actually think that they're real, at least in the way that we think things in this world are real. And it's this failure to believe God at this critical moment of choice that brings us to the brink of stumbling and falling and cracking our heads as we go. And let me tell you the reason I know this is that I live this one from the inside out, just like all the rest of us do. So let me ask you this. What's really real to you this morning? What's really real to you? Are we looking, as Paul says here, at the unseen things which can only be seen with eyes of faith, true enough? And are we looking at them with the same confidence that we have in the things that we can see with our naked eyes here, with our physical eyes? Or is the suffering we're experiencing here and now and the happiness that we want instead, 
Are they the only things that are really real to us? Now, here's the thing. If this world and its joys and its sorrows are the only, if this is the only real world that you've got, and that's what you're leaning on as you try to keep your balance, you have a problem, as do I. That which we're leaning on is as temporary and as shaky as we are. And it will never provide us the stability we're longing for. You realize, friends, the only hope that you and I have to accept, it, 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 is to accept the invitation of God to us here, to discipline ourselves, to keep our eyes and our hearts fixed on the unchanging fixed points in the scene around us, to rest our weight of, the weight of our hopes and the weight of our needs on God himself, and to hold fast to what he's promised to do in us and for us as he leads us through this world and on to the next. Now, that is not easy to do. That is why over and over and over and over and over again, the scriptures bring us back to these same truths because we live so deep in the muddle, it's hard to see above the mess. But that's what this book is for, and God will open our eyes and lift us from it so that we can see again, get refreshed again, and renewed again in our perspective. And if we do that more and more, and our perspective begins to line up with God's perspective on our pain, we will know a certain degree of freedom. It won't make the hurts hurt any less, but it will make them mean more. And knowing what it all means may be just what we need to help us stay the course, even when everything in us and around us says, let go and save yourself before it's too late. Well, it's fall. It's hard to believe it. It's felt more like July, but this past week we decided it was fall in our house, and so uh, we, we uh, got in our mindset that it was all over the river and through the woods-ish outside, and we went up in the attic and got down all of the stuff that we put out, the pumpkins and the wreaths, the oranges and, the, and browns and all the rest of that stuff, and it looks very, very nice at the house and all that. But let me tell you, decorating for fall or any other season usually means for me climbing up and down the ladder into the attic usually with stuff in my hands. Now, I've done that on more than a few occasions, and every now and then things get out of balance, and I start to sweat. Well, when that happens, I have to confess to you I have only one and a half thoughts in mind. I'll go with a half thought first. The half thought is, where will this thing in my hand land, and how big a mess is it going to make, and if it's expensive, how much trouble will I be in? That's a very fleeting thought, but it's there. But the first and the whole thought, though, is what can I grab and how fast can I grab it? That's where I go up here in those moments. Well, friends, my hope is that by now you know the answer to that question when life starts to get out of balance on you. I hope you know that you have to keep one hand firmly wrapped around the reality of God's hidden work in our lives through hardship, and you keep the other one firmly wrapped around this heavenly reward that waits for those who walk with God and with each other through the pain as Jesus did for us. And as we do this, we will be able to keep our balance as believers. And as a consequence, we will live with deeper joy and greater confidence in the eternal God regardless of whatever comes our way. Will we do it perfectly? No. Will we stumble and fall sometimes? Yes. But the way to stability is also the way back up. And we reach and we grab them again and we keep on climbing. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the grace that you've given us to tell us these marvelous things about our present and our future. Father, forgive us when our eyes have been so focused on the things of this world that we 
cannot and do not see the things that are unseen. Help us to see with eyes of faith what you're doing within us and what you have waiting for us and are storing up even now this remarkable, unimaginable weight of glory that will seem far heavier and far more glorious than any of our trials now. Help us, Father, to see that perspective. And Father, I pray for that person here today who feels totally overwhelmed by trials and knows that they don't have this hope yet in their hearts. I pray, Father, that today that they would let go of everything which they've trusted in their own good works. And Father, I pray that today would be the day they ask for your forgiveness. They give their lives to you. They ask you to be Lord and Savior in their lives. Father, I thank you that as we do that in the sincerity of our own hearts, Lord, you answer that prayer and make us your children and you adopt us into your family. We thank you, Father, and pray that we all might rest in the knowledge that the eternal God is with us and at work in our hearts, both in this world and in the next. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.